I had a hell of a time picking music for tonight's podcast. You know, we we were joking about uh, Die Hard being one of the best Christmas movies as well as an action movie, and you don't really say that about the first two, right? Christmas and Hollis. Talked about that on the, on the the first Long Road to Ruin podcast for Die Hard. Uh, but by the time you get to Die Hard three and four and God help us five, we're 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 done with it revolving around Christmas. Um, so I was thinking, like, well, what what are you going to play? And I thought about playing Christmas music anyway, just because it is the holiday season and I love Christmas music. You know, a little Dominic the Donkey, little the hat I got for Christmas is too big. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. You know, Christmas carols we all know and love. Maybe a little Trans-Siberian Orchestra, huh? A little, little metal for you. A little Twisted Christmas from Twisted Sister, Dee Snyder. Where are all my Long Islanders at? But, you know, ultimately I decided this is a diehard podcast, not a Christmas podcast, so I, I threw the Christmas music out. And then I was like, well, what am I going to play? Uh thought about playing Juliana Hatfield's cover of Black Dog, but I wanted to have this podcast with Sean, and I didn't want him to hang up on me. How you doing, Sean? Strap in, kids, that chapter and verse that we got of, I'm sorry, that verse and chorus of CCR that we just got, it's quite literally all downhill from here. And yes, <laughs> for as much as I am the diehard of all Juliana Hatfield diehards, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for not playing that sad, sad little fallen on its face cover of rock and roll that I made the mistake of telling you about. I, You know, I have to tell you. Juliana Hatfield's self-titled album, Juliana Hatfield, in which she does a, a, a bunch of covers, I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, I didn't think it was great. You know, it wasn't like, I was like, oh my god, I'm, I'm now obs- as, as obsessed of this as I was of Ailstorm covering In the Navy by the by uh, the village people. Have you heard that? In the Navy. In the Navy. I I, I've never heard that, but then again, I'm admittedly not quite as up on my hailstorm as I probably should be. No, not hailstorm. Ailstorm. A-L-E. Pirate metal. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so metal, metal, metal is your and Roberts thing. You know what? I, I have my, I have my uh, system of a down. I have my Metallica, my Maiden, my Nightwish, my Deftones, and maybe one or two other bands, and... As far as I'm concerned, that's mostly it for me in the heavy stuff. So, well, I loves me some pirate metal, as everyone who knows me knows, and uh, and this was not pirate metal by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, oh, we, yeah. we can cr- we can cross that myth right out there. Juliana Hatfield, not pirate metal, is my public service oh, announcement for the night. I could have told you that. I'm not. Sure. I, I really hope that wasn't what you were thinking. No, not by a long shot. Um, I go back to I go back to spin the bottle with Juliana Hatfield. So I more or less knew what I was getting into when you told me about it. And you know me. Uh, if there's one thing Mark Radlitz loves, he loves him some cover songs. So well, see, I, I, I think my, was, my thing was more so that if she really busted out the Marshall stacks like she did on Only Everything, that maybe we might actually get a pretty damn good little album full of nice hard rock and covers. Um, maybe play something like the the nice little rendition of I Know It's Only Rock and Roll that I got to hear her play in concert um, several years back. No, no, no. And unfortunately, she kind of does her her very 
subdued, introspective, very mellow alt-girl thing that she's really known for. But it just doesn't suit some of the songs that she picked out. It just... It, it, you know what it is? I have a lot of singer-songwriter girly stuff covering things they had no business covering. Like, I have one of all singer-songwriters doing ACDC songs, and you, know, and you haven't lived until you've heard uh, Shoot to Thrill as sung by a 12-year-old girl. So I think my tolerance for this sort of thing is rather high, maybe higher than it needs to be. Uh, in well, any case... And, and, sometimes it, and sometimes it works, like with Tori Amos and Strange Little Girls. Hi, Ari Bernstein. How you doing? Um... <laughs> Her cover of but, Slayer is absolutely eerie. Oh, my God. I've never... I, I, I know I frighten easily, as it's been talked about on this show, but Jesus Christ, her cover of uh, Rain and Blood, scariest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's eerie? That's yeah. eerie? My friend, her cover of 97 Bonnie and Clyde is fucking pissingly terrifying. Um... I was not nearly as terrified of that as I was of Rain and Blood. But that is just that is that is just unsettling. That is like you just kind of <laughs> want to just back slowly away from Tori, smiling and nervously, <laughs> laughing, but all while never taking your eye off her for a moment. That's because she's got a pair of scissors in her hands that she's about to stab you with. Well, no shit. <laughs> well, well. Well, also, I mean, you never want to kind of take your eyes off Tori Amos too long because Tori's quite pretty. Yes, she is. Terrible things have happened to that woman. Terrible things have happened to that woman, but she remains pretty despite it all. And the hell of a singer. In any case, uh, I finally settled on Fortunate Son to open up this podcast because we are talking about Die Hard 4, Die Hard 4.0, Live Free or Die Hard, World War (laughs) 3.com. It has many names. And uh, we will be talking, of course, about die, the latest in the series, Die Hard 5, um, otherwise known as, Oh, for the love of God, please stop. <laughs> the, the, the series has now been crusty burglared. <laughs> so, you know, we t- we t- the first two were great. The, the third one was almost a Die Hard movie, but it was at least entertaining. This is where Sean and I just sit back and, and, and look at these movies and go, Ugh, what, 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 what is it that's happening here? What, what are you trying to do? So come on in, kids. It's the long road to ruin. I'm the mandated reporter, Mark Rattledge. He is the one who brings life back to music, Mr. Sean Comer. And we are about to uh, drag Live Free or Die Hard out of its comfy apartment and beat it to death in the hallway. So let's get started. All, while, <laughs> all the while listening to Singing in the Rain in the background. All right. So, Live Free or Die Hard comes out June 27, 2007, uh, several years after, uh, I believe 1995 was the last time we ran into John McClane. And so what have, what have we got here? Uh, in the first two movies, in the first movie, he's uh, estranged from his wife, but they're still married. She went to go take a, um, a chance of... Uh, position of a lifetime with a company out in California and we the movie picks up with him going to visit her and his children on Christmas Eve. Second movie a year later presumably and uh the, the, he has moved to Los Angeles become a Los Angeles detective and they have traveled to Virginia to 
visit her uh, her parents for Christmas, and the movie so takes off from there. Then, uh, mysteriously, in the third movie, it's five years later, and he has left his wife for some odd reason, and gone back to New York and resumed being a New York City police officer. And so, uh, Die Hard five, uh, 4, Live Free or Die Hard, picks up, now this is uh, 12 years, I believe, after the events of that film, certainly as far as release dates go, it's 12 years later, and he's still, thankfully, a New York City police officer. That hasn't seemed to change. But the movie, excuse me, but the movie picks up with her, his daughter being a college student, and she hates him. I want you to keep in mind that uh, the family dynamic that I've just laid out, because it's a huge reason why I start to have some major problems with these films. And we're going to go back to it. But the, um, I want to go over to Sean here, because I joked about the title of this thing. Uh, Live Free or Die Hard, released as Die Hard 4.0 outside of North America, was not actually a Die Hard movie in its inception. Sean, what was this thing at its birth, and then what did it mutate into? Born a stupid piece of shit, and it died a stupid piece of shit. <laughs> I'm going to need you to give details. Oh, okay. Um, remember how last week we talked about how the original Die Hard was actually initially the aborted attempt to sequelize a 1960s Frank Sinatra movie that just kind of failed upward into a classic Bruce Willis vehicle as Bankable Star after, after Bankable Star, including Sinatra, passed on it. Remember that? How it was originally based on a novel? Yeah, uh, this is the opposite. This is really more akin to something like, say, Hellraiser Inferno. This is a movie that actually 20th Century Fox studio executives apparently didn't believe could do well enough standing on its own, so they decided to reconfigure it and somehow managed to Frankenstein this sack of festering, glitter-farting fuck into a die-hard movie. The early script for it was called WW3.com, and it was written by Enemy of the State screenwriter David Marconi. So if a lot of things in this movie look and seem familiar, there you go. He based it on a Wired Magazine article by John Carlin called A Farewell to Arms that was about that was speculating about cyber terrorist attacks on the United States. And it also coined the term used in the movie of fire sale, in which hackers stage a massive, coordinated, three-pronged attack that takes out a country takes out any country's transportation, telecommunications, financial, and utility infrastructure systems. And what happened was this apparently hit a little bit too close to home after the September 11th attacks. So Fox said, oh, well, up the brakes. You go sit in the corner for right now. We'll deal with you. And a number of years later, they took it, set Doug Richardson and Martin Bombach to work doing some rewrites and new horrible, horrible kill me already life was breathed into it when it became live free or die hard, which as you pointed out was almost simply called die hard 4.0 because 
computers. <laughs> um, yeah, Die Hard 4.0. Now with Spam Walker and Enhanced Email. Uh, let, let, let's talk about how this is minimally a Die Hard movie for just a moment. So, and, and you have to look at these things. When, when you're dealing with franchises, you have to look at uh, context. You have to look at precedent. So, John McClane, to one degree or another, is, is portrayed as your fish out of water, uh, just a cop. He's just a cop, okay? He's always in the wrong place at the wrong time, and there are things happening around him that are, um, that he, that are out of his depth, okay? He is having to rise to meet the obstacle, um, as opposed to, say, like Superman, who is the strongest being in the universe, you know, that, that sort of thing. He, you know, what made John oh, McClane... Made that comparison. Am I so fucking glad you made that, made that comparison right there? Um, you, you, you just demonstrated my great big A number one problem with Die Hard and so many different TV and movie franchises like it. Okay. Let me, let me get through this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. Sorry. Um, Go ahead. No, no, no. Just to apologize. We got, we got a lot of things to talk about here. We're both very excited. So um, it's been a while since you and I have completely teared something apart. Yeah, it's been a whole, yeah, it's been a whole about three weeks. We were actually pretty <laughs> nice last week. Yes, we were. Um, no, it's been, you and I have not really sat down and teared something completely to shreds since September. Well, you haven't. Okay, <laughs> I, I, you and me together as one, as a team. Um, all right, so getting back to uh, the precedent. So you have John McClane. He's just a guy, right? He's just a cop, um, and he's out of his depth. So the first one, he's out of his depth because he's, you know, he's dealing with terrorists. You know, he's, um, he's in Los Angeles. He's in a building. He has no shoes. He has no guns, and he's caught off guard, right? Second one... He's out of death because he's in an airport, you see. see? And, the, and, and the whole, uh, as we talked about in the first podcast, the whole world of airlines is very alien to most people who don't work in the airline industry. So there's this whole you know, backdrop where he, you know, he and, and it's, you can see it a lot in the, in the tower scenes where he's at you know, master control and they're talking about stuff and he has no clue what's going on. And he's just like, I just want to get the bad guys. The third one. He's out of his depth because he's dealing again with terrorists, and he's just a guy, <laughs> and he's he's at home and he's an alcoholic and he's suspended from from work, and some crazy person has put bombs all over the city, or at least that's what he he has said, and he demonstrates this by blowing up at least one place. So John McClane is sitting here having to put, you know put together all these puzzles and try to figure out where all the bombs are. So we move to live for your die hard. Why, why is he a fish out of water this time? Why is he out of his depth? As Sean said, because computers. This whole thing, th- this whole thing was like, you know, it comes out in 2007, and it was very much like, let's take every trope of the millennials, let's take every trope of the age of the internet, the information age, and throw it all into one movie and have John McClane going, I'm too old for this shit. I don't understand. Uh-huh. Hey, get off my lawn! You know? You didn't see it, but I just I just mimed shaking a stick or a cane. <laughs> so, and then as we'll talk about in the fifth movie, he's out of death because Russia. You know, it, it, these become almost an ode 
to the time that, that they're supposed to be written in. So this whole movie could have existed without John McClane. They really could have done this you know, as just a, what if terrorists did a fire sale? What would it look like and how would it go? And, and, you, know, and, and you don't need John McClane for this movie. That was the sad part about it, was it was an interesting enough idea to capture on film without the old man running around with his homosexual sidekick going, I don't understand what's happening, and then being yelled at by Kevin Smith. It, now, would, he, be interesting, it, it would be interesting if somebody would just take one big Super Smash Brothers size mega hand and just colossally bitch slap every, every single screenwriter in Hollywood and point out to them, computers don't even remotely begin to work this way. Okay, I want, to make, I want to say my line, and then I'm going to sit back, light a cigar, and let you have at it, okay? I'm literally going to turn the body of this thing over to you, bend it over, and let you have your way while I watch. That's what's going to happen here, Sean. Um, okay, I'm, the, 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 what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the big stuff out, on my mind out of the way for the most part, and then I'll just kind of see where else you want to redirect it if there's anything that I leave untouched. All right, let, let me set this up and, and, and say my line here. And then, and then literally I'm turning this, I'm just going to let you have at it. The plot of this thing is that uh, you don't know it at the beginning. It will be revealed as the movie goes on. But uh, terrorists have hacked into every major electronic institution there is. So they, they, they get into transportation, then the, uh, then the, the power, uh, you know, the electric companies, that, that sort of thing, and then finally financial. And at first, it's it, this is the and this is the diehard reverse. This is the diehard swerve. Uh, at first, it just seems like terrorism for the sake of terrorism, and as it turns out, it's actually a bank heist, for the most part. Um, just like we saw in the third movie and in the first movie. You know, everyone look this way. Ha ha! We're robbing you here. So that's more or less the plot of this thing. So you have these American terrorists who are. Um, who are hacking into all these things and causing mayhem, and it's all a big cover for uh, them to steal uh, financial information that they can then wean off and make billions on. And uh, it's set up where the FBI is, uh, is sort of trying to figure out what's happening, and they're, uh, they're gathering up um, hackers from across the country, and John McClane is sent to go get the nearest one near him, and that ends up being Justin Long. And th- this oh, is what great. I wanted... And this is what I wanted to say about this. They have, they, they're set up in a command center, which ends up being in Washington, D.C., Woodlawn, as we'll find out later on in the movie. Um, and they're able to, they, they're able to hack you know, all these government institutions. But at some point, they're also able to get into John McClane's personnel file. <laughs> they're, into get, they're able to get into his 401K it's magically, within seconds, they're able to get any piece of information at any time, anywhere in the world. And I'm watching this movie, and I said, you know, I understand the concept of hacking, and I understand what the point of the movie is, but computers, A, don't work this way. <laughs> B, they certainly don't work that fast. And the one thing I wanted to say is they're seen, you know, as, as Eddie Izzard says, they're very swish with everything. It's like, you know, the, the, lead, of the, the lead villain of the movie, uh, Timothy Oliphant, says, you, get me that thing. And then, like, seconds later, they, 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 they put the camera on one of the nerds he's got working for him, and seconds later, he does it. I can't get cell reception at Walt Disney World, okay? 
I can't when I go to the, when I bring my daughter to the Y, I can't get Facebook to work on my phone because there's too many trees in the area. Let alone these can, fucking people and their ability can, to do anything at any time. Can we just mention that in the first movie we at least got a villain with a little bit of flair, a little bit of style, just the right amount of menace. And in this movie, we're supposed to believe that this country is under threat from somebody who has somehow amassed this army of just the prettiest goddamn nerds you're ever going to see. (laughs) Who are all ninjas, by the way. Yeah, and he's done it all despite having the collective charisma of Dwight Schrute. Despite being played by Timothy fucking Oliphant? We, we can talk about the characterization of the villain in a little bit, but I really want to hear your your take on the meat of this plot, which is essentially using a Macintosh computer, you can not only hack alien vessels, but you can also hack anything in the government at any time, anywhere. And not just the government, you can hack any... Uh, if, basically, if it's on a computer somewhere in the universe, you can hack into it. Instantaneously. Do you have any idea how many times, and keep in mind, my day job is I work online. I work in online marketing. Do you have any idea how much, the extent to which I wish computers were this magic? Just how much I wish that computers really were this all-powerful? The originality on this has run out a long time ago. I mean, especially when you consider that, yeah, this pretty much looks and feels exactly like Enemy of the State. It might as well have just been a fucking sequel to Enemy of the State. Because Enemy of the State was actually kind of, sort of, not really all that bad. I mean, it wasn't a masterpiece. It wasn't Citizen fucking Kane by any stretch. <laughs> but but it was mildly interesting, and it came out at a time when this super slick, sexy hacker trope hadn't been abs- hadn't absolutely had the ever loving fucking piss beaten out of it to the point that we were all that every nerd on earth was just screaming at the in the theater, stop, stop, it's already dead. <laughs> but before I get into all that. Like I said, I'm, I'm so glad you made the Superman comparison. Because by this point, this just needs addressing by now. Uh, here's your difference in heroes. Uh, you know why, for all the tragedy and strife and crisis he must endure, and actually having been killed at one point, why Superman keeps coming back to do what he does? It's because he feels a sense of obligation, because he's the only being on this planet with the superior power that he has, and he feels a need to do some good with it, to protect the people around him, especially the people that he loves. Batman keeps coming back and doing what he does, despite the fact that he has had one family member shot through the spine and paralyzed and another beaten to death by his greatest arch enemy, he keeps coming back because he made a promise to the spirits of his parents that he, did, that he didn't 
want other people to suffer through what he had, that he wanted to undo all the injustice, all the evil in Gotham City because of what had been taken from him. That makes sense. Green Lantern. Oh, Green Lantern keeps coming back, coming back again and again because, well, I, I should say each of them for that matter, because they're gifted with the ability to wield the most powerful weapon in the galaxy, the power ring. In Hal Jordan's case, it's because he's been granted exceptional will, the ability to combat great fear, more than any other being on Earth, maybe more than any other being in the galaxy. In those cases, the obligation entirely makes sense. When it comes to people like John McClane or Jack Bauer that just keep coming back and coming back and coming back, no, it stops making sense after a while because these people are put through, are put through more bloodshed, more loss, more violence, more, more struggles between life and death than some people experience in entire wars and experience this most of the time within the space of a day or a night or a couple of days. You know, die hard, I understand it. You're stuck in a building with a bunch of, Europe with a bunch of Europeans who are hell-bent on holding people hostage and even killing them, including his wife, just to get a fat stack of money. Okay, I get that. You're fighting for your own survival. You're, you're fighting for your wives. You're fighting in part because it's just your nature as a cop. However, you know, he's also playing it up the way a normal person would. He's scared. He's nervous. He's really kind of bewildered by everything that's going on. It makes sense. Second movie, okay, again, makes sense. His wife is on one of those planes that's in danger of going down at absolutely any moment, and he's got an airport full of people again, and it's on Christmas. Okay, once more, feel the sense of obligation. Just happens to happen. He even says at one point, how can the same thing happen to the same guy twice? It's almost like he's lampshading the absurdity of this. <laughs> All right, I get that. Fair point on that one. Third one, okay, now we're starting to dip the plausibility into really dangerous levels. Because now all of a sudden, the long-lost brother of the guy that he killed in the first one has come back about a decade later to seek the most convoluted brand of revenge the world has ever seen. <laughs> and he's targeting McLean specifically. Okay, kind of hard to get away from that. In this case, it has quite literally been made personal, and he's got to fight his way out of it. All right, I'll give you this one. In this case, no, no. After the first time you get fucking shot at, you just had Mr. fucking I'm a Mac over to the authorities. <laughs> And you just say, "Gun, nope, I know where this is going. I am getting into the, onto the next continent as soon as I possibly can. Y'all deal with it. Most advanced military in the world, supposedly the world's most advanced intelligence network. Come on, you can suss this out by the time, 
by the time it's time for American Idol to start, deal with it. I want to add to your rant here, and it's quite, it's quite a good rant, that in the first one, you see him vulnerable. He's peeling glass out of his feet. He's bloodied up. He's out of breath. You know, he looks out of shape, and, he's the, and that's the youngest he'll ever be in this franchise. Keep that in yeah. mind. He looks like an average adult. Yeah. By the time you get to the fourth one, he's launching cop cars at helicopters. He's bleeding from every uh, orifice on his body. He's in one accident after another. And by the end of it, he's and by the end of it, he's destroyed most of the uh, of the interstate that he's driving on with a truck that that, that he plays chicken with against a fighter jet. I, you know, I mentioned Superman before. Superman is actually indestructible. It makes sense when he does certain things that he does. And it also makes sense that movie makers have to go out of their way to give him an extra hard struggle, considering you're dealing with God. John McClane, at this stage, is you know a, a, a bordering 50, I think, middle-aged man who, who should be dead. I mean, somebody compared him to the Terminator with better one-liners. And that's as good a description of John McClane in 4 and 5 as anything else I've ever heard in my life. Though, though even by, by the time we get to 5, the one-liners are getting stupid. He says through 5 constantly, I'm on vacation. Which, you know, I understand a certain degree of quip, a certain degree of sarcasm in these action movies. However, I, I, I cannot... You know, you're, you're there to, to, and we're going to get a little bit more into this when we actually talk about five, but you're there to save your son from what you think is drug addiction or drug dealing. It turns out he's a CIA agent, and, you, and in the middle of a firefight in Russia, you're yelling, I'm on vacation, and then you keep doing it, I, I, I know, as if winking to the audience, I'm on vacation, laugh now, wink, wink. Like, this has gotten, re- the, the, the thing of it is, is and, and this is what I, I wanted to so to switch gears into, though, if you still wanted to talk about the computer stuff, that was fine. Oh, God, do they, I. <laughs> they've lost the point. Four completely loses the point of a diehard movie by focusing instead on the billions of dollars in destruction that is caused by this guy chasing the bad guys. There's one thing about the, that, they've, that they've managed to re- reduce John McClane to is he's a terrible superhero. All he says is his, his, his whole motivation for doing anything, because you're right, in the first two movies, it's about his wife. Okay? In, the, in the third one, he's, he got drawn into it because the guy made it about him. So you, that, that's why the three got grouped together. Because in four and five, he had absolutely no motivation for doing what he was doing. Other than the stated motivation in the movie, we have to, the McLean's get the bad guy. We have to go get the bad guy. Because every other cop in the United States... Every soldier, every soldier's a turncoat, and every cop is incompetent. Only John yeah, McClane gets bad guys. We, we, apparently have, we apparently are supposed to believe that John McClane is the only fucking mildly competent law enforcement officer on the planet. He's it. He's all we've, he's all we've got. And throughout this entire series, he mostly inhabits two major U.S. cities. I want to. I want to go back to something for a second, and I and I, and I'm trying to. And I made a joke about it last time, but I want to bring it up in serious context. When two people bomb the Boston Marathon, the entire uh, 
you know, Boston police were shut down that city, smoked them out, and caught them. One got one died. The other one, I think, is sitting is currently sitting in jail, awaiting trial. Yeah, there was no lone super cop here. <laughs> there was a coordinated effort by the by the law enforcement and the city of Boston and the outlying areas. I don't even think they brought in the National Guard for this. So it's hard to believe. It, you know, I understand it's a movie and people listening to this going, Jesus Christ, why? You know, you're a little too hard on what's supposed to be a popcorn movie. No, you can still make a popcorn movie. And, you know, if you're look, if you're going for Transformers level of silly, fine. I don't I don't make these kinds of comments. But if you're expecting me to believe, you know, it, part of the tension of this movie is that you're led to believe that this is a possibility. And so it's a little frightening. It's unnerving that, that you know, that one minute you've got a 401k and the next minute some guy behind the computer is wiping it out on you. That's, a, that's supposed to give, create real tension and give real fear. But it's hard to, but it's not believable when at the same time, a 50-year-old man is doing the kinds of things he's doing in this movie and is expected to be believable. See, but here's what makes this even worse, though. In the first movie, you got one guy against 12 terrorists who have taken a building hostage. And everything takes place over the span of about a couple of hours. So he's really having to mostly really work pretty damn fast because he really is kind of in it on, on his own. There, there's kind of no time for really anybody else to adjust to this because these people know what the fuck they're doing. So it's slightly more plausible, still unbelievable, but it's, it's kind of plausible. In the movies that come afterward, where it gets a little more ridiculous and a little more laughable, is the fact that in the subsequent movies, John McClane is backed by pretty much every security agency you can imagine on Earth just to try to stop one or two super criminals. And he's still the only one who's apparently capable of accomplishing anything. It does more than just takes the intrigue out of it to have it be to go from one man against 12 terrorists to one man and an entire fucking agency at his disposal against a bunch of terrorists. It, it really gets kind of absolutely ridiculous. Um, it's, it, we make a lot of wrestling comparisons, uh, comparisons on this show. It's, but it would be like if you were trying to pit one bunch, or actually, hell, those of you who watch WCW kind of know what I'm talking about here. It would be like if we were to manage to pit an entire roster of an entire roster of people, most of them between about 200 and 250 pounds, against three guys in their mid 30s. Okay, two guys in their mid 30s and one guy in his 80s. <laughs> And somehow they still manage to beat the ever-loving fuck out of everybody. And who's the one guy who after 20, 30-some people can be beat up in one shot by these three people who manages to finally get the better of them? Some doofus in long hair and Brandon Lee's face paint from The Crow that sits up in the ceiling listening to The Cure all night. <laughs> okay. Now, imagine you're adding guns and explosions to that, and you have about the logic of Die Hard. 
it's one thing to expect that in professional wrestling because if you can believe that, the rules of reality there are somehow even looser. Like wondering how in the hell Sting keeps getting up into the damn rafters every show and nobody ever noticing. Meanwhile, you know, any normal person, uh, they ask you for your ticket every time you go to the bathroom. Yeah. I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. But after the fourth time I've taken a piss in as much as an hour, I would like to think that the you know that the troll currently uh, you know watching the ra- watching the the seats would at least recognize my face. Nope. Every time, where's your ticket? Well, let me give you another example. Another example here of, because this is something that actually kind of is really, it's not that unlike the first movie, and it happened in real life. Um, everybody out there, go Google the name Yogendra Singh Yadav. Three, three names there. Go ahead and try a few different spellings if you, if you want to. Um, he's a highly decorated former Indian Grenadier Battalion member. Uh, back in 1999, during a conflict with Pakistan, he actually pulled a real-life fucking John McClane in the course of a mission to try to climb a massive mountain known as Tiger Hill, um, with the objective being to neutralize the fuck out of the three enemy bunkers near the top. Uh, he was the poor schlub who was put in charge of making a hundred or so foot sheer climb up solid ice in order to pickaxe and attach ropes for the rest of his battalion to climb up. Um, Enemies on the adjacent mountain all of a sudden start opening fire on him when he's about halfway up this massive icy incline and start start blasting at him with an RPG. They start blasting him with assault rifle fire, killing and also killing half his squad in the process, including the commander. Uh, oh, and also Yadav was shot three times. And yeah, motherfucker kept climbing. When he re- and then finally his climb ended when he reached the top, where the bunkers started firing at him with machine guns. At which point he said, "Fuck your couch," and ran toward the massive storm storm of bullets launched a grenade through the window, and managed to kill everyone. He then pretty much did the same thing to the second bunker, only he said, fuck the grenades and used his bare hands in this instance. He did all this by himself until the rest of the squad got up there and took the third third bunker themselves. Um, he then was awarded the Param Veer Chakra, which is an Indian military award that has been given to less than two dozen people. And as Cracked describes it, you actually have to pull... Well, it's only given for, quote, the rarest of the rare gallantry, which is beyond the call of duty and which in normal life is considered impossible to do, end quote. Or as Cracked summed it up, you actually have to break the laws of reality just to be eligible. Two-thirds of the people who received this died. They received it posthumously. Okay. Again, what makes this remarkable? One guy against all these people. No physical way for anybody else to help him. It would have been, I mean, it still would have been impressive, but it probably would have been a markedly different different situation if he had his whole squad backing him up at the time, because chances are he might have gotten shot a few less times. 
at some point in these movies, you just want to wonder when McLean is just going to look around at everybody around him and just go, anybody, anybody, little help, anyone, anyone, anyone who wants a fucking shot. That's yeah, where it becomes... And, and now... And now comes the part where, as you pointed out, we got to get into the fucking computer thing. Okay. Or, I'm sorry, and, and it should be pronounced computers, because Hollywood continues to be under this impression that they're these all-powerful machines of magic. And that, and that apparently, by extension, the people who sit in front of them are great wizards. Uh, you know, to make a comparison here, as I was telling Mark before the show, I am constantly getting into these discussions with people about why I absolutely refuse to watch The Big Bang Theory. Don't worry, I am going somewhere with this. Yes, I'm about to tie The Big Bang Theory into Die Hard. I want to go on the record of saying I love that show. Uh, that's absolutely fine, and when the show is over, I'm going to take my little clipboard and my little Walmart scanner gun, go back to the storage room and see if I can't find you a fuck to give. (laughs) The reason I hate this show comes back to a term that I had never heard until a friend of mine actually coined it. Nerd blackface. It's this idea that it kind of takes my people, our people, geeks and nerds, and kind of boils them down to the most comically obvious, ha, 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 it's also socially awkward stereotypes. And obviously, if you're out there, and especially if you've lived in the United States for any lengthy period of time, I don't need to explain what the issue we have here is with minstrel makeup or blackface. And that is that it's incredibly awkward to watch typically you know, white people. Um, well, hang on. This is, well, now well, you're getting into – hang on. I want to explain this for people. If you've never heard the term blackface or don't get the whole minstrel thing, um, the, really the idea behind it was white people um, taking the worst parts or the perceived worst parts of black culture and focusing on that and making that the focus of their act. And then when white people stopped doing it, black people took it up. <laughs> black, yes. people liter- black people literally would put on blacker face and say, the only way to entertain white people was to humiliate themselves as much as possible. And that gave birth to the, you know, to the blacker face uh, culture, which you know, years later, black people would then revolt against. But it, it's essentially, it, it's, it's, it, as Sean is saying about geek culture, it's taking the most stereotypical worst parts of it and saying that's all there is, that's the focus. Right, exactly. So we've, we've, kind, of, we've kind of made that comparison. So I, basically we have the idea of something like a satire like the Big Bang Theory being the equivalent to blackface. Okay, if that's the case, if that is the equal to taking blacks or geeks and boiling them down to their most embarrassing stereotypes for the sake of comedy, this is the polar opposite. 
this is like managing to perform a stage play in which I am trying to claim that all black people came and ride magical unicorns, crap lightning, kiss rainbows, and spit butterflies. Apparently, we've reached the point where Hollywood has just continued to like portraying hackers as being these terribly sexy, cool people. Who I, want are draw capable. Com- I want to draw a comparison to the first guy. The first guy, the, the hacker in, in, die, in the first Die Hard was, ver- was very limited in scope. They sat him at a terminal inside the building and said, get us into the vault. And that was his job. Yeah. As opposed to an idea where somebody sits in a remote location with a laptop can hack into everything, everywhere. And, and like I said, God damn it, they're not just the prettiest people you've ever seen. Folks, I've got news for you. Your typical geek, your typical hacker, your typical coder ain't looking shit like Timothy Oliphant or Hugh Jackman. Or Ming we, like we have We look some oftentimes like we have not seen the sun in about six months. Okay? And the fact is, it's much, much more complicated than just a matter of a few of a few simple keystrokes or mouse clicks to wipe out somebody's entire 401k. No, it's considerably more difficult than that. Infinitely more difficult. There's a lot more skill that goes into it. Plus, I have never met a fucking hacker who is as goddamn strapped as these people are. <laughs> some of them, these are some violent fuckers. Um, we, you hear the term cyber terrorist thrown around, but they're not literally killing machines. I think back to Newman from uh, Jurassic Park. You know, he was in it for the money, and he used his computer skills to sort of screw with the screw with the park long enough for him to steal and get out. And everything else that sort of happened to that was an, was a happy accident. You know, he had he really did not intend for the entire park to be overrun with dinosaurs. He was trying to, you know, create enough of a diversion that no one would see him get away. Um, and Newman looked like your typical hacker. <laughs> he was perfect. Um, yeah. They are, Ma, Ma, Mai Lin, that's her name in this thing. Uh, Maggie Q plays a character, Mai Lin, who is not only a hacker, but she's hot as shit and she's also a ninja. In fact, Bruce Willis actually make, makes fun of that at one point in the movie. He's like, enough of this kung fu bullshit. And it's like... <laughs> And I'm like, first of all, if you spent that much time learning how to use a computer and, you know, learning code and, uh, you know, learning how to uh, hack into uh, computer systems, you, you did not get your black belt in Kung Fu. You, you know, you did not hang out with the Gracies. I mean, it, it's, they may, you know, it, it, it becomes Homer's car. You know, it has, they have to be, you know, or uh, Peter Griffin presents a king and I. I am I'm not just a, I am not just a king, but I am a robot and a ninja. Like enough, they can't be all of these things. Um, it absolutely baffles me that apparently none of these people have ever sat down to wonder: Do computers really work this way? No, yeah, I mean, don't know. Hair. I mean, you 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 and Robert are the horror guys, but I would imagine this is a lot like one of those horror movies where. 
you know, the, the, the writers and, and the producers of this thing have created a ridiculous um, entity that's supposed to frighten the audience. And all you can think through the whole thing is, nope, such and such doesn't work this way. And it takes you oh. out of the movie. And so if you remove the, the tension that is supposed to be created by the fear that your entire life could disappear with a click of a mouse, all you have left is elaborate scenes of destruction. Let me say, there are, at the end of this podcast, I want to talk about another movie that I really want to see um, since they're going to continue to do diehard movies. But uh, let me talk right now about another one that, that I would like to see made. And it actually fits in with the Marvel Universe. You may or may not be aware that Marvel did a four-issue uh, four series of a little-known comic called Damage Control. Damage Control was brilliant for what it was. It was, a, you know, after the superheroes have destroyed a city, it's a construction crew that comes in and, and, repair, and, and like, fixes things after the battle. Uh, okay, I'm familiar with this one. Yeah. I, I thought damage control was a really funny idea, um, and, and I don't remember a lot of it because it's been decades now since I've read it. But it, but I do, but I remember at the time thinking how this is hilarious and what a f- funny concept it is. That you never, I mean, if you look at the end of Live Free or Die Hard, like I said, they send an, they, they send a fighter jet after the bad guys, and of course, then they're able to hack into the fighter jet's computer, right? So <laughs> every again, once again, this is. They're able to hack anything. Um, oh, you know, you're risk- and that's, but that's another you're, thing right there. Was I hallucinating that part? Was I just having a fever dream? Or did the military really just fucking stick fighter jets on a bunch of hackers? Yes. They, well, well, no, by this point, they're, they're terrorists. <laughs> you know, it's a little different. response. <laughs> So they sent fighter jets after the escaping after terrorists who are in a high speed chase in a van. Uh, John McClane is chasing them in an eighteen wheeler, which he instantaneously knows how to drive. Folks, I've driven an eighteen wheeler. That man drove it like you know, like like he's been driving eighteen wheelers forever. Um, let me tell you, they're not that easy to drive. I mean, man, they're you know they might be a little bit easier than an alien vessel, high wheel Smith, but you know, but they're still pretty difficult to drive. In any case. He drives that thing like he's in the demolition derby. And between him and this fighter jet, they proceed to destroy half of whatever area they're supposed to be in, including bringing down an entire uh, interstate. So the, the, the point that I was getting to was that... Um, so, you have this, so you have this fight... So they hack into this fighter jet, and the fighter jets, uh, you know, shooting at John McClane, they're playing chicken, and they just destroy everything. And so there's wreckage for miles. Everything is on fire. They have destroyed this city. I mean, people fucking cried about uh, Zod and Superman destroying Metropolis, you know, and, and the amount of destruction that is caused by Zod's ship. Because he tried to... Um, What's the word I'm looking for here? He tried to recreate the planet into Krypton, which made a little bit more sense than, you know, what John, that, you know, while John McClane is chasing four or five terrorists, manages to destroy an entire city. Two of them, because they, they started with Washington, D.C., early on in the movie. So I want to see the movie that followed that. 
I want to see the, the next five minutes after after they after John McClane shoots himself through the shoulder in order to kill Timothy Oliphant, you know, and he and and somehow this this whole series of uh, events has made him and his daughter uh, reunite, you know, which you never, of course, know why she's so mad at him, but nonetheless. Everyone's happy by the end of this film. I want again the camera to just shift slightly over to the right and see the people trying to figure out how they're going to put fucking Baghdad back together again because that's what they've turned it into. This place looks like Lebanon. Speaking of which, in the eighties. Speaking of which, for those of you who are keeping score here, let's keep in mind this movie's implication is that ultimately it's not the collective governments of. Cuba, Iran, Syria, North Korea, Iraq, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that all got together and decided to take the United States military by the hand and play a game of stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself? <laughs> no. No. Instead, they're pretty much getting, getting cyber bitch slapped by the ecstasy dealer from Go!, <laughs> I was thinking that, you know, a salesman from Express. No, no nobody fucking else thinks of this. No, fu- the fucking pretty boy Dwight Schrute over here is the one ultimately that manages to figure out the key to decimating all military infrastructure, bringing the entire country to its knees, and he's doing it to pad his own bank account. Not another, not another country in the world with all the resources at its disposal, which is probably going, why didn't we think of that? And not only that, but where does he think he was going to go after this? They've now, they're now responsible for bringing down the United States, you know, from the infrastructure to the financial industry. And, and, and the assumption is that the, the, is that the bad guy really thought there was anywhere in the world he could have gone. Well, no. The only place he could have gone would have been maybe uh, a couple Korea. other nations, a couple, a couple other nations who would have been like, "Teach us your ways, master." <laughs> we, we've been trying to do, we've been trying to do that shit for years. All we had to fuck around with was flying planes into buildings. <laughs> we could, Let's, we could have done all this so much simpler. Um, just to move the podcast along here, because I think we've talked about how the plot makes. Just is complete. It's so implausible that it took an hour for us to rant on it. I, I want to talk about a few of the characters, um, and then we need to get into. <laughs> it's a good day to die hard. Um, for the for the sake of our good friend Robert Winfrey, I want to talk about Kevin Smith for a moment. Kevin Smith um, is a fat nerd, and he was employed. <laughs> and he was. What was that? But who does he play in the movie? He plays a fat nerd. That's the point that I was getting to. They said, listen, we that need someone joke, to play it. That, that was the joke I was getting to, pantsless reporter. <laughs> well, that's okay. Well, either way, whoever gets, whoever gets to the finish line first here, you know, they, they, they said, okay, we have this character in the movie. He's a fat nerd. He's got an overinflated sense of importance, and, you know, and we want him to – uh, you know, we want him to ape the you know the gaming nerd com- um, culture. We want him. We, we essentially want to make fat Neo. Okay, that's your character. And they got a guy who a looks the part, b acts the part in real life. So for those who were like criticizing the movie for using Kevin Smith, 
I don't really, you know, that, that, that's like, you know, criticizing the people who, who shot the Punisher for putting Kevin Nash in a role that required a big, strong guy to beat up Thomas James. Like, well, no, he did exactly what, <laughs> that wasn't bad acting. That was exactly what they wanted. So for those, for those people who, who have a real serious problem with Kevin Smith in this movie, I, he is the least of the problems with it. The only, the um, only difference is, like, Kevin Smith ain't no basement dweller. Oh, no, 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 no. Kevin Smith managed to land him a gorgeous woman who apparently couldn't wait to jump him and have him put a baby in her. God bless him. Um, I, yeah, I this, think... this, is more, this is more like what Kevin Smith would have been like if Clerks hadn't worked out. <laughs> so... Let's talk about the one character in this movie that deserves talking about, uh, you know, and his uh, relationship with Bruce Willis and any on-screen chemistry they might have had, Justin Long. And oh. I, I think, I mean, the performance was fine. You know, Justin Long plays a hacker who um, he's actually doing Internet security and he's employed to do Internet security for the terrorist group, though he doesn't realize that he's doing it which is what, why he's involved in this. He's also one of the last remaining survivors of the group that was doing that sort of thing. So they've killed off everybody else. He's the last one, and it just so happens that uh, he happens to be in close proximity to John McClane when, um, when they're saying bring all of these people back to D.C. for questioning. And he's sort of, John, he's sort of Bruce Willis's guide through the Internet. So he, you know, he's, that's his purpose, and... Um, he, in a lot of ways, it's supposed to mimic uh, the relationship between Bruce Willis and um, what's his face, uh, Reginald something or other from the first movie. You know where you know he talks about where in that case the, the character's story arc was. You know, I accidentally shot a kid and I was shamed and humiliated, and uh, by the end of the movie, he is redeemed when he shoots the bad guy. You know, for the first time in like twenty years, he pulls his gun. In this particular case, there's this whole subplot about, you know, Justin Long is a big fairy, he's afraid, he, you know, he's not a hero, and at the end of the movie, he's pushed into a corner and he shoots the bad guy. Well, well, yeah, that's, that's the difference, is the fact that in the first movie, Reginald Bell Johnson actually did a good job of playing Al up as being fairly competent, just being quite possibly the only other competent cop other than Bruce Willis walking the face of the earth. In this case, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't hate Justin Long. I, I really don't, even though I do sometimes mistake him for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's just the... Wait, they're not the same person? Not from what I can tell, um, unless, the, unless they are the living proof that matter can exist in two places at the same time. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the one problem is, is I looked at Reginald as Al, and I thought, competent, heroic, brave, trying to do the best he can to help the situation, has some faith, has some faith in John McClane. In this case, I look at him, and all I see is just his 
milk toast, mealy mouth, irritating crybaby character from New Girl, and I just can't help but think, no, John, don't. When this one inevitably turns on you, he's going to reveal that he's managed to weaponize Zoe Deschanel's personality and is going to proceed to, crim- to criminally and terminally annoy the fuck out of the entire country until he brings it to its knees. No, he's the traitor. Get away from Paul Genslinger. I like New Girl. <laughs> God, I'm sorry. I I got through a full season before finally I snapped and started shouting at my TV every time that fucking woman was on it. Shut up! Shut the glitter farting fuck up for the love of God, you dippy bent! Enjoy the silence of an unexpressed thought. Close your noise hole for five blessed seconds. She gets she gets better in the in this season. Unfortunately, she gets better in this season, and the Schmidt character gets infinitely worse. That's the other thing. I hate everybody else around her, too. <laughs> I, it was so bad that I just I shut it off. I went, and I, I switched on Bones, and the moment I heard Emily Deschanel, I just went, ah, the good sister. <laughs> So Justin Long annoys you. Didn't did not add oh, to the film. God. It's just he doesn't bring to it as a sidekick quite what Reginald Bell Johnson brought to the first one, or even dare I say what Sam Jackson brought to the third one. He just there, there's no sense of anything interesting except for the fact that he's pretty much a wuss. And predictably, of course, you you can see it coming a mile away from the time both first Mary Elizabeth Winstead as John's daughter has been been introduced, and then once he's been introduced as arguably one of the closer characters this movie gets to portraying an actual nerd. Um. But he's another one who, with a PDA, can hack into everything in the universe and upset the villain's plans and everything else. You know, and I, at least at least the writers of this movie had the temerity to say at one point, well, the PDA doesn't work anymore. Why? Because the satellites are down? No, because the batteries are dead. Da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> womp womp. Um, but I'll take it. You know? I'll take some degree of realism. Uh, I, I want to mention this before we move on. As I said, the film opens up with, uh, the, you know, there's no mention of the wife. The wife is dead at this point. The, the wife no, will no longer appear in these movies. Um, but for no good reason at all, Bruce Willis is stalking his daughter. They don't explain why. They don't, they don't say why he's there. He just wants to talk to her. And he happens to, you know, catch her in the midst of being molested by her not-a-boyfriend. And so, there's, <laughs> so they, they just kind of throw you into this. And it's and it's basically like they don't want to put any more thought into like John John McClane is here for one reason and one reason only and that is to blow shit up and catch bad guys. That is what the people in charge of these movies have decided that this is all about. So so to humanize him, this is what this is what humanizing means in modern Hollywood. We'll give him a daughter who hates him for no good reason, and then at the end of the movie, because he saved her life, she'll love him again. Keep that in mind because it's a big thread of the second of, of the last movie. 
when when you first saw John's daughter, did you for a second also mistake her for Aubrey Plaza? I don't know who that is. Okay, I, I guess it was just me who was getting one actress that was in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World mixed up for another one. I never saw Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. God, I'm talking to a heathen. <laughs> I swear to God, this is turning into, like, I, I feel like talking to you, I'm the Peter Griffin in this relationship. I like Roadhouse. <laughs> does does <laughs> this make me Brian? It might. You do like the sauce. I'm staying away from moving cars from now on. <laughs> oh, that's okay. People will cry on the internet, uh, and you'll be brought back in an episode later. Oh, not oh, not for me. Harris will be trying to snag my co-hosting gig. <laughs> Moving on. Um, all right. Is there anything else you want to say about Live Free or Die Hard, folks? This movie is is again a much better movie would be made about you know the cleanup afterwards. I actually want to see a movie that here. I want to see Damage Control the movie, but a, a subplot of that movie has to be the trial of John McClane. I want to see the movie in which he's actually brought up on charges along with the terrorists for having caused citywide destruction <laughs> unnecessarily. I want to see the scene where they're saying, like, really, it wasn't that important. You know, for you to have destroyed half, you know, half a city, it wasn't important to get these people. We would have found another way. We shut down an entire city to catch two bombers. It would have been okay, you asshole. This is infinitely worse what you've done. The only other thing that I'll really say about it is just the fact that I hate the fact that I have to hate a Timothy Oliphant performance because I like Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, I, I didn't spend too much time talking about him. I mean, I feel like, you know, he's supposed to have been a, gov- you know, a jilted government worker. You know, the whole thing is he told the United States uh, government that this was going to happen. and They didn't believe him, so he went and did it anyway. You know, and you know, but instead of just doing it to prove a point, it also has to be an opportunity for him to to steal and make money. And I get that he's supposed to be very type A, you know, uh, white collar, um, composed. You know, you you can't have him chewing scenery and being over the top. So you know, I actually like the scenes towards the end where he's trying to get the daughter to um, to talk to McLean and say like, hey, you know you know, be reasonable, reason with him, and she won't do it, and he just looks at her like, I, I'm surrounded by idiots. You know, I, the, so as an understated villain, I thought he worked out fine. The problem is he's mired in this cockamamie magical universe where people can, can you know, can do anything they want with a, with a fucking cell phone. Um, but this movie is practically Shakespeare compared to the next one. Whoo, doggy! Oh, mother of... Oh, good mother of fuck this movie. <laughs> um, maybe I'm wrong about this, but th- this might be the first one we've done since we started doing the series that actually incorporates a brand new movie. You know, like, we uh, we did Superman, but that was the original series of Superman movies, um, But we and we did it the week that Man of Steel came out. Um and, and a lot of the ones that we've done have been significantly older. So this might be the first one that we've managed to incorporate into a movie that came out during the dead zone of, uh, of movie premieres, February. Um, February 
2013. A good day to die hard. Budget, $92 million. Box office worldwide, $304 million. Fuck all of you people for continuing to like these movies. Uh, who knows whether or not? Who knows whether or not they like them? They went is the point. <laughs> people, people thought you know, yippee ki yay, Mother Russia, good idea. Let me get out to the theater for this one. Yippee ki yay, Mother Russia, why yada? <laughs> all right, so let me. Uh, I did, I watched this one while doing laundry which I would recommend for anyone else who decides to sit down through this. Make sure you're sufficiently distracted. So the plot of this thing appears to be that, you know, in the, in the fourth movie, it's the daughter who's estranged from McLean in this movie for no reason that I, that I could um, pick up. John McClane, we meet John McClane and he's worried about his son. His son has disappeared from the face of the earth. He's given a file that says his son has picked up all of these charges and he's dealing in Russia. So John McClane boards a plane from Moscow to go look for his son in a foreign country, in a foreign city, uh, so that he can pull him out of the streets and get him into, get him some help, get him into rehab or something. That's his plan. Meanwhile, back in the city, his, as it turns out, his son is a CIA agent, and he's been deep undercover for the last three years, so that they can, uh, so the United States could acquire an asset in a character named, uh, oh God, who is this character? Um, so, uh, Yuri Kamarov, played by Sebastian Koch. Uh, the idea is that they want to spirit him out of Russia because he's got a file having to do with. Chernobyl, and with this file, they can do things. But they need, you know, I think they want to bring down the, um, who is this character? Um, ah, the character's name is Victor Shagarin, a corrupt, high-ranking Russian official. For some odd reason, the United States is very interested in deposing this person, and so they need uh, uh, Yuri Kamarov to do it, and so he goes undercover to spirit him out of Russia to the United States, and John McClane shows up and fucks the whole thing up. And for the next hour of this movie, you will be treated to this son yelling at, yelling at Bruce Willis. No matter what he does, no matter what his intentions were, he just spends the next hour saying, I hate you, why are you here? And at no point, is, <laughs> at no point does, does Bruce Willis say, oh, I realize what's happening here. I'm going to remove myself from the situation before I get you killed. Nope. You know, every time nope. I watch one, every time I watch one of those lines of dialogue, you know what I thought of? I thought back to the uh, the the climactic episodes of Breaking Bad, and Walt Jr. just yelling at Walt, "Why are you alive? <laughs> Why won't you just die?" <laughs> so yeah, the movie is supposed to. The, you know, the big tension in this movie is you're supposed to see the father and son sort of reconnecting, except that this is the first time you're meeting the son. He will not be, he is not in any other diehard picture. So all you get to see is this, you know, and, 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 and I'll tell you what this whole movie revolves around. Never mind the ridiculous action set pieces. Never mind 
the cockamamie plot. This revolves around a monologue that Bruce Willis gives about how he thought he was supposed to be as a father. And he talks about being a New York City police officer and how you have to work all the time. And he, and he actually says, I felt like the best way to be a dad was to just not be there. And, <laughs> yeah, I hear you laughing. And so, you know, you hear that and you go, like, well, that makes no sense. But <laughs> no, 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 it's. No, no, it's just because I I have to imagine that at some point they decided to once more just continue playing wacky little games with the title and maybe initially might have considered calling this Die Hard Daddy Harder. <laughs> um, <laughs> die, the, cats in the, the cats in the Die Hard. But, um, yeah, cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy. Anyway, um... So, yeah, that's what this whole thing revolves around is that I have actually heard other men say that. I, have heard, I don't think it's a great idea. I, you know, it's something that I, I would say is the exact opposite of what you should be doing as a father. But there are some men who feel like their role is to just provide for their family. It's the woman's role to sort of be the disciplinarian and the person who's um, invested in what's going on in the house with the personalities in the house. It's the man's role to go out and work and provide for his family, and if that means never being home, well, you know, you're doing it for your family. Um, if some men legitimately believe that that's true, uh, Dr. Mark says you're 100% wrong. The, the role of any father, the role of any husband is to be there in his family, with his family. And, yes, we all have to work. I have, to, I have a job, same as any other husband and father, um, I have to support my family, but part of the why I do I don't do certain things anymore is because, and I, and I made it a point to say this once Lily was born. I want to be there for my child. She benefits by my mere presence, and that's not an ego thing. That's a fact. Children benefit by the presence of their parents. Now it helps if you're not on crack. Let me say that if you're, you know on drugs or molesting them, they're probably not benefiting by your presence. But barring those sort of activities, children benefit by the presence of their parents. And, you know, you, uh, the idea that you, need, you can be off and away and working and not be involved in what's going on in your kids' lives, um, it's, just, it's just not true. So... You- you can be the baddest mama on the planet. Nothing's going to make you more afraid than I'm going to tell your daddy. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's more than that, but that that that's the bottom line. Um, you know, we work better as a team than than we do solo, uh, as my wife and I often say. But you know, to get take this back to Die Hard, um, that's sort of the excuse the writers gave him for you know his whole family falling apart was that he was so driven by work that, you know, consumed by it, that he, you know, that that seemed to be his, you know, his only link to life was to be a cop. That's how he defined himself. Before father, before husband, he is a cop first, which was fine if that had been, if they had taken some time in the other movies to establish that. But they don't. You know, it's, it's, it's only brought up in this movie as kind of an afterthought. It's, huh, looking back on these four movies, what we realize about Bruce Willis's character, John McClane, is that he was a terrible father and a terrible husband, 
because he chose, he actively chose not to be there for his family because he thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but make time for that then. Spend well, some time we, we, dealing we also, with that. We also never threw, never threw in the fact that half the terrorists in the world wanted the man fucking dead. <laughs> well, that, 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 well, that's the other part of this. And I go back to the fourth movie. You know, the girl is sitting there yelling and screaming at him, you were never around, you don't love me. And you just want to look back at her and goes, you know, I've been shot at a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um... I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to you in just a moment, Sean. Get your thoughts on this movie because I don't have a tremendous amount of analysis here. It's just this whole movie revolves around him reuniting with his son and you know trying to get back into the lives of his children in the most hackneyed, stupid way possible. Because I'd have to imagine that if you know that if I'm a CIA agent and I've been in deep cover for the last three years in the middle of Moscow. And my father shows up in the middle of it. The CIA, someone from the CIA is running out to throw a bag over his head and throw him into a corner somewhere. (laughs) They're certainly not going to let him commandeer a jeep and proceed to destroy half of Moscow with it. You know, the biggest, my biggest problem with this movie and with the whole very premise of it and the previous one is... Fucking no, Fox. No. No. Can't let you do that, Fox. I am not going to let you just go for just about three straight movies with no character development whatsoever, not explaining anything about the man's man's family life, and then all of a sudden trying to turn these two movies into great, big, insightful character pieces of action movies wherein we're trying to inject family drama into it now. No, no, you don't get to do that. That's, it's like trying to write your doctoral thesis about 15 minutes before it's due. (laughs) You have shown us nothing else throughout all the rest of these movies. You you half-assed it with Bruce Willis and fucking Ramona Flowers trying to quibble over their relationship to bookend the previous movie, and really that's all it was, was just a couple of bickering fights between these two that that just both began and ended it. And then in this one, you're trying to make the whole movie about a years-long conflict, an estrangement between a father and the son we have not seen once in four fucking movies prior doesn't work. It was never going to work. This felt like a tacked-on stupid concept in the first place. And aside from all that, I repeat, why are you still doing this, John McClane? <laughs> and then and yelling the whole time, I'm on vacation. I Did you find yourself yelling at the television every time he said, I'm on vacation, yelling back at him, then go on vacation, put the gun down? I found myself wanting to watch City Slickers. <laughs> no, they were on vacation. <laughs> My God, John, you have absorbed enough hails of gunfire at this point that your great-great-grandkids are going to be pulling 9 millimeter bullets out of their anuses. <laughs> Um, John you, Courtney as Jack McClane is very unlikable. 
I mean, I think part I think part of the reason why I don't buy the conflict between them, aside from the fact that you've never met this character before, is mm-hmm. that he's a jerk. <laughs> and you know, and I, I understand what they were trying to do with this thing. You know, it was like he, he, you know, they were writing it where he's in control and then he's not in control and he has to depend on his father. And that's how they build their relationship back, that, that they're a team. Once he, you know, once he becomes vulnerable and admits that he doesn't know what he's doing anymore because the whole thing is spiraled out of his control. Okay, that's fine. Except that Jai Courtney is terrible. <laughs> Jai, Jai, Jai Courtney as, as John McLean Jr. just sucks. And I, I, there was no on-screen chemistry between those two. No, no. It, it was like they were somehow trying to find a worse pairing than Harrison Ford and Shia Buttfuck. A, a, almost, a better movie almost would have been had he actually been on drugs. I would have liked to have seen a combination of Die Hard and The Basketball Diaries. God, that might have actually almost worked. <laughs> I can't imagine it being worse than this. <laughs> um, if, if those of you are like, wow, they, we're, we're, run, we're running short on time here and they haven't talked about, about the plot yet, because the plot is so bad in this movie, it's not worth studying, but it's also not worth talking about. N- needless to say, you have one of these deals where at the end of it I was thinking, so the CIA knew that the DEA was setting up the FBI? You know, it was like, there were so many, I mean, granted I was also putting away laundry, so maybe I missed a critical detail here, but every other time I turned around, someone was betraying somebody else and you know, and it was there was a double cross, and then at the end, I think the daughter does a suicide dive. There, you know there's what? your movie. Here's a here's a fair question about about John McClane in this universe. Um, at this point, among the worldwide terrorist community, shouldn't he be just about the world's most feared carbon-based life form? <laughs> You know what? Shouldn't these people, once they get wind that he's become involved in a plot, just pretty much give up and say, bye? I have a better question. He's in a foreign country, tearing up one of their cities. How was he not executed? I mean, Putin executes his own people. How did this guy make it out alive? How did either of them make it out alive? How did the entire Soviet army, how did the Russian army not come down on them? While they're yeah, in the middle I'm, of tearing up Moscow. I was going to say, we're talking about Russia. We're talking about if you, if you want to sleep with someone of the same gender, you might have very well just signed your death certificate. He decimates one of the world's largest cities. <laughs> and, and might I add, in a country that has always been a little bit iffy about its relationship with the Yanks. I mean, they're not necessarily too fond of too fond of them in the first place. And one of them just came in there and just pretty much tore the city apart block by block just so he could make nice with his kid Field of Dreams style. Yeah, I don't see how they ever got out of Russia alive. You know, during that, at the end of that car chase scene, um, every Russian soldier within a 20-mile radius should have shown up and pointed guns at John McClane. The problem is they probably considered writing a scene like that and have John McClane still win. And then point at the Russians and go, get the bad guys. Because that's what See, he's been reduced to. But again, though, but I keep going, how does word about John McClane not get out to people yet? Why is, <laughs> why is the logic not unlike the 
one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite Doctor Who episodes, the Pandorica Opens. Uh, think about every black day I ever stopped you, and then do the smart thing. Let someone else try first. <laughs> Why is I- that not the key when it comes to John McClane? Let someone else try first. Yeah, it's so this movie was a giant pile of fail. Um, and now I want to talk about the movie. Now, they are talking about doing a Die Hard 6. I mean, if there's anything more you want to add to this, Sean, but my voice is giving out and I'm tired. So I just I don't want to talk about this movie anymore. It's it's terrible. At this point, why don't we why don't we just call it Die Hard and then put a quote right next to John McClane's face? For God's sake, don't you think I want to? <laughs> Die Hard, the next Die Hard movie is going to be called Die Hard, Please. yippee ki uh, God damn you. <laughs> so, speaking of more Die Hard movies, uh, I want to end the show with uh, with this uh, series of thoughts. John, uh, Bruce Willis has stated that, um, and they'll keep making them. I mean, again, $92 million, $304 million. This is why we can't have nice things, people. Um <laughs> <laughs> so they'll keep making Die Hard movies because people will continue to go see them. That being said, and I, I didn't say like, I said see. So that being said, um, they're, they're, they're going to, Bruce Willis has said that he will continue to make Die Hard movies so long as he can run and fight, which he still can. I don't know if he's got any more kids left from the first movie that he can be estranged with, but you know, maybe they'll bring back the wife, maybe they won't. Here's the movie that I would rather them do. Um, I would rather them kind of take a page from some of the other movies that we talked about this year, like, say, Paranormal Activities, and go back. But don't go back to before the first Die Hard. Too far back. That's Phantom Menace. You don't want to do that. Um, I want to no, go... prequels. I want them to do a prequel. of. A, I want to do Die Hard 2.5. I want to see the movie where things fell apart for him and Holly, and he left Los Angeles. That's the movie I want to go see. I want to know what happened between uh, airport on Christmas Eve and him showing and him being drunk and suspended from the New York City Police Department. What? There's a lot of stuff that happened in that, and that would be more interesting than him blowing up. What's left for him to blow up? He's blown up, and let's see, he he blew up most of New York City. He blew up most of Washington D.C. and Baltimore, and then he blew up Moscow. There's nothing else left. There's nowhere else to go other than maybe the moon. So let's, let's, let's dial it back a bit. You know, what are they going to do? Put him on a submarine next time? This time, he's trapped in a submarine. You know, <laughs> die hard, blah, 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 underwater. You know? Divorced hard. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I want to see Die Hard 2.5. I want to, and it doesn't have to have any action in it. I prefer that it doesn't. I don't need to see any of that stuff. I just want to know what happened to him and Holly. What happened that he decided that it would be better to live on the opposite end of the country from his family when he had already made the transfer? And why did the police, and why did the New York City police take him back so easily? And then why did they suspend him? I want to know what happened. Oh, God, this man should be, like, sealed in a cement bunker by this point and just buried, like, 25 feet beneath the surface of the earth. 
the fans should be dead. Kyle. <laughs> I mean, not because like I, I I hate the character, just because no one can take that kind of punishment and still. I mean, Jesus Christ. By the end of Lord of the Rings, after a, after a long walk through the woods and being you know and being kind of beaten on every once in a while, uh, you know Frodo at least looked like he was going to die if, if if Gollum hadn't bitten his finger off and fell into the lava himself. It looks like that's where Frodo was going anyway. My goodness. Well, yeah, hell, I mean, by the end of um, by the end of twenty four, Jack Bauer was looking a little worse for wear. Here is my final thought on this entire podcast, and then I think we're going to go into outros and talk about what we're going to do next week. You ready? This is my final thought on the entire di- – this is how I can sum up the entire – and I always do a little summation at the end of these podcasts. This is my summation of the Die Hard franchise. You ready? Ready. Man armed with sword demands free tacos from San Antonio restaurant. <laughs> Oh, did someone watch Radio Dead Air last night? <laughs> nope. I was at, as I was talking, I was also flipping through Facebook, and somebody put this on here. Man armed with sword demands free tacos from San Antonio restaurant. A 28-year-old man is accused of using a sword in an attempt to get free tacos from a southeast Bexar County Mexican restaurant. Okay. Yeah, that, that was, is also uh... known as a robbery. Yeah, um, I for the first time in many, 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 many months, I was able to set work aside for about 30 minutes last night and uh, watch the What the Fuck is Wrong with You segment of Radio Dead Air last night. And that was uh, <laughs> that was one of Nash and Tara's stories. Which, oh, um, I don't yeah. listen to Radio Dead Air or watch or whatever it is, so uh, that, that's funny oh, that, God, that, Mark, that was you, both. Mark, you have to. You you have got to start making that a Monday night ritual, especially since it's a running gag how many stories on that segment come from Florida. Well, that, that's why on the on the right hook, which you can hear Wednesday nights at 10 o'clock live on FromTheRightRadio.com, a running uh, bit that we do on that show is Florida Man. Do you follow Florida okay. Man on Twitter? If not, you should. Okay, then what I'm going to do is uh, very soon I'm probably going to message you um, – Nash, uh, who's a contributor on that guy with the glasses, uh, every week takes just that one about 30-minute or so segment of what is about, I think, a four- or five-hour weekly uh, web show and breaks it out into a single segment that he puts on Tiguatig. When this week's is up, I'll have to send it to you because a lot of it was devoted to uh, weird Black Friday stories. Okay. Including including the, the taser fight. But I, I remember the San Antonio one because Nash also also busted out a um an Invader Zim Gur reference. Man wakes up from ten hours sleep to find knife in him. This is why I shouldn't read the internet when I do podcasts. Okay. This has been the long road to ruin. Uh taking on the die hard franchise. It's been a it's been a lovely trip through um you know, two films that were fantastic, and then you know, as, as Sean said, a uh, the art of diminishing returns. So we have one more show left for 2013, and that is the Santa Claus trilogy. We're ending with uh, as, as much Christmas as we can get into a single episode. So that'll be a week from tonight at nine o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Yes, it will be. I agree. 
Okay, I, you started to say something, so I was giving you an opportunity to chime in there. No, no, actually, I was stifling a burp. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, um, so that's our show. Uh, as I said, the right hook, it will be tomorrow night at 10 o'clock, and then you'll be able to pick up the archive version of if you missed that here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. Um, this Sunday is the 401 Ground and Pound radio show. We will be reviewing UFC on Fox 9, which I'll have covered the night before on uh, 401mania.com and the MMA Zone. Um, so that's 9 o'clock here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network Live. We'll be reviewing that show, and then that's going to be it, because uh, the following weekend um, of the, 20, the 20th and 21st, I believe, there's no MMA going on. The next, time, the next MMA show will be uh, uh, two weeks, and that's going to be the 28th, and that's Anderson Silva, Chris Weidman, uh, Ronda Rousey, and Misha Tate. So stay tuned for that. I won't be covering that show, because I'll have people over. Um, in addition, uh, we should be doing another Casual Hero soon. There's a Casual Heroes um, that was posted on their site. I haven't gotten it posted on Rattledge and Broadcasting yet. Uh, and it was just, it was right, it was actually recorded after we did the In Defense of the Ultimate Warrior. And it's just Gavin and Jed um, BSing and talking wrestling. So, so it, was a, it, it was an interesting lesson. Had some issues with it, but still, uh, you know, I respect those guys and their opinions. Uh, so give it a listen. Um, in addition to that, uh, as I just mentioned, because, because I was offended, uh, P- Pat, Gavin, and I did an In Defense of the Ultimate Warrior podcast uh, last week, which is a great listen and definitely something you should check out. It was really it was a lot of fun. It was an hour of us talking about how um, the Ultimate Warrior has been uh, mistreated by the Internet community. So give that a listen. And uh, lastly, I will be on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy this Thursday to finish up my uh, walk with Robert Winfrey through the list of Disney villains. This time we're taking on Renaissance into the Rebirth, or whatever it's called. Um, so basically, Little Mermaid all the way up through Frozen, skipping all of the darkness in between. <laughs> um, and then that's kind of be kind of it for me for the year. Uh, other than doing the last couple of MMA shows um, and The Long Road to Ruin with Sean, I'm more or less done with uh, this sort of thing until we pick back up again in January with uh, the Aliens Quadrilogy, which hopefully your buddy will be around for. But even if not, it'll just be the two of us for two-plus hours talking for uh, Xenomorph movies. Yeah. um, Really, to be honest, I'm kind of glad we're going to be having a little bit of time off to start recharging our batteries and... Of course, you know, throughout the early part of the year, you and I are each taking uh, some blocks of time off here and there to kind of recuperate a little bit. I know that um, that I'm taking a couple of weeks off um, uh, starting in about uh, mid-February up into up into about mid-May until you go on, or mid-March, rather, um, until you go on hiatus. Because, uh, quite frankly, as much as I love doing this stuff, it gets exhausting sometimes. It, it really no, it does. does. That's part of the reason yeah. why I didn't need to take as much time off as I took in October. But I, I thought I was gonna—I thought I was gonna be busier than I was. But still, it was just nice to just not do it, you know, just kind of sit back and do other things between nine o'clock and eleven o'clock on a weeknight. Um, yeah. But I wouldn't—I wouldn't want to give it up. Oh no 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 no! It's just that that occasionally you need to take a little 
a little bit of time away from it. I mean, like I said, I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks off. We're not going to be doing anything um, between about next Tuesday and after the first the first of the year because Christmas and New Year's, obviously. Um, and in fact, uh, next week, uh, because of some circumstances that have come up between shows, uh, I may need a fill-in. Um, I, I've got some place that I kind of that I really have to be on December 17th. So we may have to tap into our friends of the Long Road to Ruin and see if anybody else feels like watching the Santa Claus trilogy uh, so I can go get some business taken care of. All right, we'll see um, what happens. Worst comes to worst, there just won't be a show. <laughs> we'll, take a, we'll take an early week off. I, which, you know what? I would be okay if you decided to want you wanted to do that too, quite frankly. Um we, however, we do have to say a quick thank you again, and we're going to be saying it probably every show as long as he's willing to do this, to our outstanding new title card artist, uh, Benjamin J. Cologne. Uh, he did that snappy-looking, very theatrical-looking diehard card you see before you, and uh, he just... I, he, he he did such a superb job of taking a couple of reference pictures and really bringing them to life right along with the characters from the movie. Um, by all means, go support him. Look him up on Facebook. Uh, you can find him commenting on some of our posts over in, over on the Long Road to Ruin Facebook page, which I also strongly recommend you go and like. But you can also check him out online at soulxo, S-O-U-L-E-X-O.com. That is the home of the independent comic book that he's created, in addition to also sometimes being the artist for Revolution of the Mask, the uh, kind of long-in-gestation independent comic book that is written by Louis Lovehaug, uh, that guy with the glasses, comic reviewer, Linkara. So, by all means, go check those out. Support a very, 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 very talented guy and a good friend of ours. And, you know, as, as things wind down, since this is, since this is probably going to be my last show until after the first of the year, I say this so often, but, you know, I mean it every single time. Uh, Mark and I, first and foremost, we do this show for us. We do it because we enjoy it. Uh, we don't tend to really pander to other fans to necessarily other tastes or anything, although we are always open to suggestions and everything. We just, we kind of do it our way. We, we give each franchise, for better or for worse, the due that we feel it deserves. But that being said, even though we're doing it first and foremost because it's something that we love, there there's not enough words, not enough books I could write in in all the world that would contain all the thanks I have for our fans. Um, you folks, I, I can't speak for any of the other any other podcasts on 411 Mania or as we're about to rejoin them, Manic Expression. I'm going to be putting both episodes of Die Hard up about, uh, about an hour or so after tonight's show gets done over there. So sit tight, guys. I got you. Um, but, you know, we, we've had a lot of fans in the last couple of weeks who have started really friending us on Facebook, messaging us, telling us how much they enjoy the show. Uh, I can't think of too many times we've ever really gotten any negative feedback on it. 
pretty much every, <laughs> pretty much everybody everybody we encounter has got has got nothing but good things to say, and uh, you know, I, I relish every chance I get to interact with all of you guys. So j- just to rattle off a few of the friends we've met, uh, Robert Garza, Jason Teasley, um, uh, Benjamin, obviously, since that's how, that's how we met, was he just happened to message me and say that he'd been a fan of the show for a while. Um, obviously, Jackie, our wonderful super fan, who I previously never got to thank for sending me the Nerf bow uh, when we did the Rambo review. Um, God, just everybody who interacts with us on a regular basis uh, after hearing the podcast, everybody who's guested on the show, everybody, all of our friends who, who love tuning in. Oh, Andrew Graham. Andrew Graham also sent us um, a very nice note the other day, uh, just really praising us up and down. Uh, you are all absolutely terrific, and there's some weeks when when things are getting a little rough over here in the Fortress of Shawnitude that y'all really make it worth it. And for as long as I can, I'm going to make sure that any time, in almost any given time, uh, you hear those first strains of the Foo Fighters at uh, 9 o'clock Eastern time every other Tuesday, that shortly thereafter you're going to hear Mark introducing me and me trying to have some kind of snappy comeback to say. Because uh, I'm just a regular guy who happened to stumble into a really good gig sharing his love and sometimes a hatred of movies with a big bunch of like-minded people. So thank you, and from the bottom of both our hearts, we wish you uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Con- Happy Hanukkah, Kick-Ass Kwanzaa, um, Fuck Mad Up Kwanzaa. Festivus. Mad Kwanzaa. What? It's Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and a Mad Kwanzaa. What the fuck ever? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, that's it for that's it for us. Um, Mark, I'm going to go ahead and let you go because I've actually got a client calling in on me. But thank you, everybody. And um, since I probably won't see you next week, uh, I will see you all after the first of the year. All right, folks, that has been the long road to ruin. Um, we may or may not be back next week. Uh, more to to be continued. I'm sure someone listening to this will will hit me up and go, "Hey, I'm willing to do the Santa Claus trilogy." So we'll see what happens. If not, um, I doubt my wife, who has been hacking up a storm lately, will uh, <laughs> will volunteer. So uh, if that if that, that that's the case, um, there may be something else instead, a special podcast of some nature or not, or there may be nothing. And I may just go for a run next Tuesday. Who now knows? It's a mystery. It's very exciting. So uh, if I don't have an opportunity to uh, wish the fans specifically of this show, uh, have a happy holiday, a Merry Christmas, a Mad Kwanzaa, and a Happy New Year. Uh, Until then, be well, be safe, and behave. (laughs) 